2: Economics is a vast area of study, with numerous ideologies, models, and theories that explain how and why economies run the way they do. From Keynesianism to the Friedman theory to the Fisher effect, economists have worked for years to describe the relationships between supply and demand, interest rates and inflation, and a lot more. One man, however, traveled a wholly different path. His name was Henry George, and during the 19th century, his beliefs flew in the face of the prevailing theories of the time. Even today, Georgism stands out as the antithesis of modern capitalism. In Georgism, it was believed that the value produced by the people should be owned by the people, and a single land tax would be far more beneficial to society as a whole, rather than a series of taxes affecting the poor and the working class, Georgism counted among its supporters a young woman named Elizabeth. Elizabeth was born in 1866 and moved to Washington, D.C. in the 1880s to build a new life for herself. She stood as a proud feminist, getting a job as a stenographer and writing fiction on the side. She also performed for the stage and worked as an engineer, earning a patent for improving the paper feeding system of the typewriter. Her father, an abolitionist, had instilled a certain set of values in her— values she carried with her all her life. They were reflected in her adoption of Georgism and her advocacy of a universal land tax. The amount of the tax would depend on the size, location, and viability of the land in question. And once the government had taken a portion of the funds, the rest would be given back to the people. Elizabeth was of the people and fought on their behalf, but had trouble teaching the problems of land grabbing. She wanted others to understand that the current model of landlords wielding all the power, while tenants languished in poverty, could not last any longer. So she found a solution. In fact, she made one. A game. She called it the Landlord's Game, filing a patent for it in 1903. The premise of the game centered around hoarding money, but evolved over the next several years into different versions where the objectives grew beyond simple wealth building. In one iteration, the player who owned the most industries on the board won the game. The other version, called Prosperity, took an opposite approach and forced players to make goods, coordinating their movements with all the other players. Elizabeth's success as a game creator helped her launch her own company with the Georgists, which she called the Economic Game Company. The Landlord's Game continued to be published well into the 1920s, where it found a particularly interested audience in a man named Charles Darrow. Darrow had lost his job after the stock market crash of 1929, but found solace in Elizabeth's game. Everyone seemed to be playing it, and not just playing it, but changing it. As was customary at the time, games were not merely bought and played with friends and family. Players often modified them to increase or decrease the difficulty levels, sometimes changing them so much they became entirely different games. And that's what Darrow did with the Landlords game. He learned how to play it with the help of Charles Todd of Atlantic City, New Jersey. Todd had switched the street names on Elizabeth's original board with the names of streets in Atlantic City, and Darrow appreciated that change. He carried it over to his version, adding colors to each of the property spaces, as well as cards for the players to draw when they landed on specific areas of the board. He started selling his version of the game in department stores in the early 1930s, where it became quite popular. In 1935, after Darrow had acquired a patent for his unique revamp of Elizabeth Maggie's original work, one company took interest. They saw something special in what Darrow had done, and bought the patent for it. After one year, they had turned his modestly popular game into a smash hit. And their company name? Parker Brothers. Darrow's fortunes had turned around. He'd gone from a down-on-his-luck salesman to a millionaire overnight. And as for the board game that had tried to educate players about the dangers of land-grabbing, well, it ended up teaching generations of players how to be ruthless property owners instead. You might say it cornered the market on capitalism-based games, hence its simple, yet clever name. Monopoly. Well, it's got standard third row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: Okay, I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.
0: Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here.
2: In times of trouble, it's not often that someone steps in to help those in need. Should our car break down in the middle of nowhere and we can't call for help, it's likely that most people passing by won't stop to lend a hand. Horror movies and sensationalist news stories have conditioned us not to trust strangers, and with good reason. It was morning on December 10th of 1968, and four employees of the Nihon Shintaku Bank in Tokyo were on the move. In their possession was 294 million yen, or about 10 million US dollars today. They were on their way to the Toshiba factory in Fuchu to deliver yearly bonuses to the employees there. The money had been stashed away safely in metal boxes, which were then placed in the trunk of the car. A short time into their trip, a uniformed police officer from the motorcycle division pulled them over. He was panicked. Apparently, someone had just blown up their branch manager's home, and he needed to get them to safety. Someone either had a vendetta against the bank, or they were looking for a quick score, because their next targets were sitting right in front of them. The officer told the men to exit the car slowly. The bomber had planted dynamite somewhere on the vehicle, which could explode at any time. The bank employees had no reason to not believe him. After all, he was wearing a uniform, and their boss had already received several menacing letters in the mail. Once the bankers were far enough away, the officer then got on his hands and knees to investigate the underside of the car. Without warning, a blast of heat erupted, followed by plumes of smoke. The officer jumped to his feet. He screamed at the four employees to run for cover. The car was about to explode. And they did as they were told, hiding from the blast at a safe distance. Except that blast never came. And when they looked at the spot where the car had been, it had disappeared. Investigators arrived at the scene shortly after to gather statements from the bank employees. They had no idea why the police officer had stolen their car. That was probably because he wasn't a police officer. He was a thief, and he'd just made off with 300 million yen. The flash of heat and smoke had been caused by a flare left behind by the suspect. When the real cops finally tracked down the stolen vehicle, it was found empty, and the boxes with the money inside had been moved to another stolen car he'd had waiting for him all along. The employees gave the police as much information as they could remember and described his appearance to a sketch artist. The drawing was then released to the media, who referred to the case as the 300 million yen robbery. It had become a major story, and a stain on the Tokyo Police Department. Investigators believed whoever had fooled the bank employees had either been a part of the police force or related to someone who was. Their uniform and demeanor had been too convincing to be fake, yet what they'd left behind had confounded the real officers. Over 120 items retrieved from the scene were entered into evidence, including the motorcycle the thief had been driving, It was a regular motorcycle, painted white to look like an official police vehicle. The 19-year-old son of a local officer was brought in for questioning as a potential suspect. He had the means to commit the crime and no alibi. But before the questioning could go further, the young man took his life, leaving the officers at a loss. The investigation grew into the largest ever undertaken by Japanese police, with 170,000 officers getting involved. They worked for seven years trying to track down the elusive faker who had fooled four hapless bank employees into handing over 300 million yen, but he was never found. Even after the statute of limitations expired in the mid-70s, the culprit refused to come forward. To this day, no one knows what happened to the money, or the identity of the person who had committed the perfect crime. Instead, it seems he had done what Hollywood has taught us to expect. he driven off into the sunset, never to be seen again.
0: And until next time, stay curious.